All right, if you guys have your Bible with you, we're going to be in chapter 5 tonight of Judges, uh, the Gospel according to Judges. And we're continuing where we left off uh, last week, or I guess two weeks ago, actually. So if you remember, uh, chapter 5 is a song of praise. It's a song of deliverance based off of the events that we read about in chapter 4 a little bit over a month ago. And so we remember from that a couple of things, that the fact that there's a song in Judges chapter 5 about the events in Judges chapter 4, it tells us that God's not ashamed of the events that took place in Judges chapter 4. Everything that happened there happened according to God's good plan. And in that, He's glorified in the events which happened. And these are the very events which actually perpetuated His covenant promises to the nation of Israel as well as His covenant promises to, every, to believers, believers in every age because of the covenant of grace, the covenant that grants salvation to undeserving sinners. Because if God would have let Israel to cease to exist here at this time period in Judges, if He would have allowed Sisera and Jabin's army and forces to just wipe them out, to just force them into oblivion through um, oppression, then His promise to Abraham to, to make him a, a people that would bless all nations and to bring the Savior through him would never come to be. So God is continuing his covenant promises through the actions that happened in Judges 4 and Judges 5 is a song about them. And so that means in a very real sense, the events here in Judges 4 and the celebration that Israel is having here in Judges chapter 5 are things that we as Christians today should be glad for as well. We weren't there. We weren't even close to being there. This happened so many uh, centuries ago. But if you're in Christ today, trusting Him for salvation, these are events that God brought about so that one day you would be saved. So last week, or again, two weeks ago because of the COVID, uh, we considered the first part of the song. Uh, there the song emphasized the strong Lord in light of the weak people or the humbled people. And there were lines of praise for God because of who God is and His might in light of their weakness. And the sections that we have for us tonight and for next week, there's going to be the last part of verse 11 through verse 23. The focus of the song is about the people of Israel, what they did and what they didn't do. And so we see praise for the willing and lament or rebuke for those who failed to rally with the Lord. And that provides for us a framework to think about a couple of things. You know, we see that God's will is going to be done regardless of what people do. Yet, that doesn't free them from responsibility. And we'll really talk about that next week. We'll get to that, how sovereignty and man's responsibility play out together. But tonight, we're going to be thinking about a couple other aspects as well. Uh, and so what we'll do to begin is we'll read the Word uh, there in Judges chapter 5 and... After that, we'll pray, and then we'll look at, at the, the text itself and see what it is that uh, the Lord is teaching us through it. So the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 11d uh, in Judges chapter 5, reads, yeah, d, so there's four lines in, Ju in Judges 5, 11, so the last line. 
Then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break out in a song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down from me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their root, they marched down to the valley. Following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen, from Akir marched down the commanders, and from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar, fa- and Issachar faithful to Barak, into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the clans of Reuben were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, and Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. The kings came, they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought, from their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away, the ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon. March on, my soul, with might. With might. Then loud beat the horse's hooves with galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Miraz, says the angel of the Lord, curse its inhabitants thoroughly, because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to help the Lord against the mighty. So that ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. May he grant us understanding and exalt Christ from it. Let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this, this song of praise, this song of deliverance, and we know that it is actually something that explains your glory and your purposes, even in bringing about our salvation today and the salvation of anyone who would ever be saved. So we pray for understanding tonight. Please apply your word to our lives, Holy Spirit. Give to us a greater desire to honor you, to glorify you. Help us to to know that we stand bare before you, knowing that you see all, you, you know all. And so we don't come uh, to boast of our own works and our ability. No, Lord, we we see how unable we are, and we ask that you would provide for us understanding that we might be conformed to Christ. In his name, we ask these things. Amen. Okay, so that's how the song or the story continues on. Uh, the focus has moved from the character and the ability of God and has now moved on to focusing on the people that God used in this battle and the people that also refused to let God use them. And a big part of this section of the song is about praise for the willing. Praise for those who, who did what God had wanted them to do, who did what uh, Deborah had prophesied to them about. And praise for those who are willing to trust Yahweh and go to war against the enemies of Israel. So let's consider the text. Uh, we start at the last part of verse 11, 11d. That's how this section begins. If you remember from times be, uh, before, we've talked about how the Bible didn't actually, when they wrote it, they didn't have like, chapters and verse numbers in them. So sometimes you might have sections that are kind of, that don't seem right with the verses and the chapter number because those were added later artificially as a way to help people understand and memorize. So it begins really at this last last section of verse 11. And here we see it's being pretty straightforward. It's a song praising the people, people for their role in the Lord's battle. And let's not forget that even though the focus is now on the people, it's just, this is the Lord's battle. It's the people of the Lord that we read are marching into battle. That's the identifier, right? Israel 
is rightly called the people of God, of course, but it's intentional here that they say the people of the Lord rather than just Israel. It's in all caps in your Bible, right? If you're looking at your Bible, the word Lord, that means that it's, it's the proper name of God in view. It's Yahweh. That's the proper name of God. And mind you, when, when we say Yahweh, we don't just mean the Father. Yet when we, we think of Yahweh, we're not just talking about the Father. Yahweh is really Father, Son, and Spirit. Yahweh is the triune God. To say Yahweh is to acknowledge Father, Son, and Spirit. So it's Yahweh's people are marching into battle. They represent Him. And He goes before them and He empowers them to do the work. And so we read, Awake, awake, O Deborah, in verse 12. Deborah has accompanied the people in battle, remember? Barak compelled her to go with him. And so now they're, going to go in, now they're going to sing about the victory they had. And it says, Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, in the next phrase. And that might be a little confusing, as, as Adam mentioned a couple weeks ago. Remember in, um, in chapter 4, we read that there were no survivors left. There were no captives after this battle. Sisera escaped, but Sisera then fled into the hands of Jael. And the song focuses on her later. We'll look at that in two weeks. But here we read about Barak leading away his captives. And the potential problem is actually not a problem at all, you see. Because at, the point, at this point in the song, we're speaking about the beginning of the battle. This is the start of the battle that is being, people are being praised for here at this point. The people marching to war are Barak and he has his captives. The captives, then, are actually Israel. Israel is under Canaan captivity. And so Barak is leading the Israelite captives, ultimately to their freedom, right? They're captive, they're under the yoke, the bondage of Canaan, of Jabin, the Canaan king. And so Barak is, leading, Barak is a captive as well. He's leading them to uh, deliverance and freedom, being led by Yahweh. And do you see, hope you see that there. And look at verse 13. It says the people are marching. So it's, it's Barak's captives. They're marching. The captive people of Israel, that's in view right now. And then we learn about them specifically. And that's from verse 14 to 23. And what you see, is, if you were to break it down, is that all, pretty much all the tribes of Israel are involved. And some of them are praised for their willingness to go to battle and, then, and fight. And then you have those who didn't fight and they're offered a stern rebuke and even a curse, even worse. So do you guys remember how many tribes there are in Israel? Twelve, twelve right? There's twelve tribes. Uh, Joseph is summed up by, his two, by two groups, his sons, uh, Manasseh and, and Ephraim. And so if we were to look closely at the song here, you'd see that all but two of the tribes of Israel are mentioned here in this section in verse 13, or excuse me, um, 14 to 23. And no mention of Judah and no mention of Simeon. And it's hard to say why that is exactly because it doesn't give us any reason, but it's most likely because of where those tribes land was, making them unable to join the battle. And so that's why they're just not even actually mentioned here, either being praised or rebuked. You get no curse. You get no blessing. That's how it works. Right, right. So here's the breakdown. Okay, you have praise for the tribes of Joseph, which would be Ephraim, and then it mentions a person named Makir, who is the son of Manasseh, and then also praise for Benjamin, for Zebulun, for Issachar, and for Naphtali. 
And these all acted faithfully towards Barak. They all trusted in God's plan and they went out against horrible odds, humanly speaking. But since they knew God was a strong Lord and they knew God was the one who was going to give the battle to them, there was really, there's really not any room to talk about odds, right? Not, not with eyes of faith. It was certain God was going to deliver the people into Barak's hands. Or it would have been Barak if he didn't doubt it was going to be a woman's hand because Barak doubted a little bit. And God will do what he says. He accomplishes his will. So those are the tribes that are praised for going along. But then at the end of verse 15, the tone of the song changes. We, we move from praise to doubt and to rebuke. Look at the end of verse 15. There, at the, at the end of that verse, we read about Reuben. And it says that there was a great searching of heart done by the people of Reuben. It's mentioned, it's mentioned two times. Also at the end of verse 16. And Reuben didn't come to battle. They stayed with the sheepfolds. But there was a great searching of heart. What do we make of that? It would seem that Reuben really thought about joining the war effort. It was something that, you know, he didn't just brush off. It was discussed thoroughly. They talked about it a lot. But they decided to stay. Gad stayed beyond the Jordan. Dan stayed with the ships. Asher also couldn't be pulled away from his ports. It doesn't mean that there is disunity in Israel or that God's mercy wouldn't extend to all in covenant with him, but we do see a reason to examine ourselves in light of this. It sounds like a bunch of excuses, doesn't it? It's, it's sheep for Reuben, ships, ports. And especially, you get the feeling that Reuben had excelled in, in kind of being annoying here, don't you? It's like he may have led on to the rest of the nation that he might come. Yeah, he had thought it out. He, he, he had pondered it in his heart a couple times. But you know, Reuben is a he. That's how you refer to the group. Is you, still refer to, you still refer to the tribe by their representative. Huh, okay. So he, they, is fine. They talked it out. What are, what are his pronouns? <laughs> yeah, we're not doing the pronoun game here. <laughs> I know. So, it's almost as if he may have led the rest of the nation, they may have led the rest of the nation on as to saying that they might come. But you know, he thought about it some more and then he pulled out. He couldn't leave the sheep alone. Excuses. And if you remember the context of the song from chapter 4, is Israel going into battle blind here? Or has the Lord told them what the outcome would be? He's made, it, he's made it clear, right? He told them that he was going to have victory. He was going to deliver them. Yet these people made excuses and didn't come with aid. More on that later and more on that again in next week as well. Verse 23, skipping down. Verse 23 offers a curse from the angel of the Lord even. And often the angel of the Lord is, a, is, what's, is what we call a Christophany. So kind of like a theophany would be like a, but a Christophany especially meaning a, a, um, an encounter, a pre-incarnate account of the second person of the Trinity. And listen in a second here, if, if that's the case here, which I think it is, it's an especially in strong indictment, right? If this, if this curse is coming from the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord was, is the pre-incarnate Christ, is a Christophany, this curse is an especially strong indictment against them. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly, is what he says. Now, Adam, to your question, no one really knows who Miraz is or where Miraz was even located. We don't know. And I would suggest to you that the reason for that is because the angel of the Lord cursed them here. 
done. They didn't do what they should have done, and, and the angel of the Lord cursed them. We don't really know much about them. They would seem to be an ally of Israel and so close to the battle that it was expected of them to help. And it sort of actually contrasts with verse 24, which we'll get to in a couple weeks. Uh, verse 24 is when it begins talking about Jael, the, the woman who drove the tent peg into Sisera's head. And if you remember, she wasn't technically a, a tribe from the tribe of Israel, right? She was from Moses' father-in-law's tribe, a Kenite. And so it kind of contrasts with that. Here's this person who's not a part of Israel and is faithful and is blessed. Here's Moraz, or excuse me, um, Moraz, who we don't even know anything about anymore. Not an Israelite tribe, but probably an ally, someone who they expected, who should have been expected to help them, and is cursed. And now we don't know anything of them in history. And so because Moraz wasn't willing to lose their lives for the sake of God, and they tried to save themselves by staying out of it, they end up having this dreaded curse pronounced upon them and ultimately lose their lives, ultimately being forgotten by history with the exception of this horrible memory that we have of them here in Judges chapter 5. So do you realize what what we should be thinking of this when we we read this is we need to be examining ourselves from time to time, not looking into ourselves, trying to see that we are making ourselves saved. That's not what I mean by that. But we need to be examining our ways, making sure that we're glorifying the Lord, that He is first in our life. And do you guys realize that you can be so preoccupied with saving your life that you will actually lose it? You can be so focused on trying to live your life the way that you want to live it. You could be so focused on trying to pursue what you think is right, thinking that the way to a happy life is is the things that the world tells you, but what you're actually doing is pursuing your own death. And the longer you do that, the farther you sink down into your sin and your depravity, and you end up hardening your own heart. You guys remember the story with Pharaoh, right? Uh, With the ten plagues in Pharaoh. We read that God hardened his heart, but also that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Well, how did he do that? How did Pharaoh harden his own heart? It was by rejecting the revelation that that God gave him through Moses. But don't think that is something that only Pharaoh can do. We can do it too. You guys are hearing the word preached on Wednesday evenings, on Sunday mornings, hopefully maybe in your own homes as well too throughout the week. But when you consistently reject the word, ignore the word, disregard the word, what you're actually doing is trying to live life your way rather than the way that God, your creator, tells you to. Listen to to Jesus on this matter, okay? This is Matthew 16. You could turn there in your Bible if you want. It's only, should be pretty easy to find. Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. So this is Jesus talking at Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So to come after me, he means, you know, to to follow me, to to be my disciple. Chapter 16, beginning at verse 24. Then verse 25, he says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man 
is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So you see, if what Jesus is saying here is if, if you try to save your life, and by that he means if you try to live your life like by your own way, by what you think is going to be best for you, by what you think is right and, and the good standard of your life, if you try to earn your way even into his graces, even into heaven, then what ends up happening is you end up losing it. You're not created to just live as you wish and be your own master. You're created to enjoy God and glorify him forever. And so I ask you guys, is that what you're doing with your life? A- ask yourself, you know, is that the case? Is, is what you're doing with your life enjoying God and glorifying him forever? Not that doing that will save you, but you do it because you have been saved. It's your response to God saving you. And so Jesus says that if you lose your life for his sake, then you will actually live. You can gain the whole world. You can have the life that you want to live. And in doing so, forfeit your soul. Don't do that. He's saying it's not worth it. You can have all the, you can have, you know, the, big, all the fame, all the glory that you want for yourself. And you think that's saving your life? Jesus is saying that's not worth it. You lose your life when you do that. You lose your soul in doing that. So don't do it. I'm pleading with you to not do it. Christ came to save sinners. We are all sinners. And so if you hear his voice, Jesus' voice, in other words, if you believe that, that he is God, that you're a sinner who needs saving, and that Jesus took on flesh so that he could die in your place and then be raised for your justification, if you believe those things, or you, if you're believing that, that's what it means to hear his voice. So trust him. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and you will be saved. That's what the scriptures tell us. You know, talk to myself or one of the other leaders, those in leadership, if you want to know more. We want to talk to you guys about that. We want to make sure you understand that. But don't make excuses. Don't make excuses like some of the tribes in Israel did how we just read a moment ago. Their excuses concerned a temporary salvation or deliverance that they weren't a part of. But remember what we've been saying about judges. It provides a type or a shadow of spiritual realities. So don't make excuses when it comes to you living for God and obeying him. There's there's another example set forth by Jesus during his ministry on earth that illustrates this as well. It's in Luke 14. You can just turn a couple chapters over there if you're in Matthew. In Luke 14, Jesus tells a parable. A parable is when he he would take a story, a made-up event, to teach a point, a specific point. And this specific parable is about a great wedding banquet. The wedding banquet is actually an analogy for receiving salvation. And the point of it, and the point of the parable, is really to condemn the Jews of his time for rejecting him. But there's application for us in it as well. And so Jesus tells of this story of a man who was going to host this wedding banquet. And all the people that he ended up inviting, they ended up having excuses. So it's Luke 14, and then we'll look at verse 17 here. So then at that time, for the banquet, he sent away his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. 
So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. So you see, God's going to save his people. You know, the, the, the wedding banquet is a parable about... The servant could be, yeah, any, the prophet, anybody who's preaching the gospel, really, right? Anybody like, we, we announce the, the good news, and those who hear it and respond in faith, we know that happened because they were, they're elect. The Spirit has made them alive in Christ. But God's going to save his people. And so the offer gets extended to many people, even to some people who think they deserve it, but not everyone who hears it will receive it. Some people will make excuses. I got to, I have to live, I have to make money. I have to, I have to, you know, support a family first and then I'll follow God. I had a good friend when I was, right before I, right when I was, well, since I was a teenager and after I became a Christian, you know, I was trying to get him to come to church and he grew up, like a lot of my friends, they all had an idea of God. They would all consider themselves to be religious, but none of them were like faithful to the Lord, um, they were all like some sort of cultural Christianity, I guess you could, you could call it. So I had this one buddy who's a good friend of mine that I really wanted to come to church and to, to hear the gospel and to, to be saved. And the thing he would say to me is, you know, well, I got to make, gotta make my money right now. And he was selling drugs at the time. And so he was, you know, began, considered himself a believer. And so he was, I have to make my money. And like that mindset, it just, there's never enough. There's, if you're, if you're going to make an excuse, there's, there's a, a myriad of excuses. You have to deny yourself and take up your cross, like Jesus said earlier in the Matthew passage. And so people make excuses, just like some of the tribes did in Judges. But think of it how it applies to you guys. Are you making excuses for your life? Are you trying to save your life by living it the way you want? Or will you see yourself as a sinner, poor, crippled, blind, and lame, as the parable puts it, and then lose your life so that you may find it? Today is the day of salvation, friends. Trust Christ for salvation. He's mighty to save. You won't ever have true joy living the way the world tells you. You'll only ever have it in Christ. Amen? Now, to finish tonight, I want to consider 19 to 21 in closing, and then I'll make final points based off of the application. And then next week, we'll consider God's sovereignty and our choices in light of these verses. So back to the Old Testament, back to Judges chapter 5, verse 19 and 21. Uh, what's happening here in this stanza is we read of praise to God for the victory that God obtained for them. And it tells of the Canaan kings who were defeated, and it speaks about a specific place, a place called Megiddo. And the reason why I want to highlight, and we're not going to get into all the little fine details about the portion of the song here, because we kind of talked about the victory that God had in chapter 4. But I want to talk about this place, Megiddo. Uh, the reason I want to highlight the reference to waters in Megiddo here is because many scholars believe that when the Apostle John refers to the Battle of Armageddon in the New Testament, specifically Revelation 16, 16, this text, Judges 5, 19, is what he's thinking about. It's in the background. The book, do you know what book of the Bible has the most Old Testament references in it? it what book in the New Testament has the most Old Testament references in it? Sorry. <laughs> the Old Testament. Revelation. Revelation does, right? Uh, there is, 
hundreds of allusions and quotations to the Old Testament. Do you want to understand the book of Revelation? Know your Old Testament is, is the key to that. Um, actually, knowing the book of Revelation helps you understand what's actually happening in these shadows and these types in the Old Testament. So, this is one of the few places actually in the New Testament where we find an echo from the Song of Deborah. But in America today, there's a popular way of interpreting the book of Revelation, which says that it's all future. That, that, that the book of Revelation is describing future events after chapter 3. It's known as dispensational premillennialism. That's the, the technical name of that system of theology or doctrine that looks at the book of Revelation and says all of these things are future. They're not, they're not now. They're not in the past. They're just future. And in that system, Armageddon refers to the final battle in human history when the forces of the Antichrist supposedly wage war on the armies of the modern nation of Israel toward the end of the so-called seven-year tribulation period. And then that battle is supposedly interrupted by Jesus Christ at his return when he ushers in a, a thousand-year reign here on the earth. It's not true, though. It's not the right way. That's not what John is meaning when he's writing these things. The fact of the matter is that when John writes the Battle of Armageddon, literally in the Greek, Har Megiddo, H-A-R, new word, Megiddo, the same word that we have here in Judges, in the book of Revelation, he's actually referring to the mountain of Megiddo. John is alluding to Deborah's description in this song of God's miraculous defeat of Israel's enemies at Megiddo. In this case, Jabin's general Sisera and all of his iron chariots. Now, don't get me wrong. The Bible does speak about a final battle when Jesus returns. And, and at that point, he ushers in the eternal age after the judgment of all mankind. But throughout the Old Testament, the final battle is actually said to be had in Jerusalem. At Mount, at Mount Zion. And it's clear that Israel's prophets use place names in figurative and not in literal sense. A premillennial dispensationalist will actually think of Megiddo as being something to do with Russia and because the, the powers that are in Russia. But for example, though, uh, when we read in the Old Testament, there's, there's no mountain of Megiddo anywhere in Israel, much less overlooking the Jezreel Valley. When John speaks of the Mount of Megiddo, uh, Har Megiddo, he's referring to any place where the righteous are attacked by the wicked. Just as Sisera sought to attack Israel near the waters of Megiddo in the Jezreel Valley before God intervened and destroyed him. It's, it's figurative. It's meaning to tell about God's goodness and God's victory. John's point in Revelation 16, 16 is that just as God rescued his people in the days of Deborah, so too he will rescue his people from all who oppose them, no matter how great and powerful they seem, they seem to be. No king, no pope, no tyrant, no president, no emperor will ever conquer the people of God. That, this is why Zechariah is getting, this is what he, Zechariah gets at when he foretells of the days when kings will look upon the, the one they have pierced and they will all mourn. Jesus will have his victory. So Christ is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, not Jabin, not Nero, not Hitler, not Stalin, not anyone else. This is what John is telling us in Revelation 16, 16. And this is why John alludes to the Song of Deborah when he speaks of the Battle of Armageddon. God will preserve his people from the fiercest of foes. Because remember, that is what these events are also doing here in the book of Judges. They're preserving God's people in time 
And they also, so in time, so hundreds of years ago when it happened, and they also serve as a type of what is to come in the last days, the time we're living in now. We are now presently living in the last days. It's what the Bible tells, tells us. The last days are the days in between Christ's first and his second coming. This land of Canaan that Israel was supposed to conquer is a type of the true promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. We've talked about that before. And so it makes perfect sense if you think about how John would use in the New Testament, he would call our memories back to this shadow of the reality which is presently taking place. God is building his kingdom. At some points, we don't know when, Jesus will come to consummate the kingdom, to bring it to completion. And just like Deborah and Israel sang for the victory God gave them, then we too, with faith in Christ, will sing for all eternity about how God saved us from our sins, how God defeated our flesh, how God defeated the world, how God defeated the devil, and how he rescued us, providing for us a victory. That's worth singing about, isn't it? That's why Deborah and people in Israel are singing here. And we're going to sing about the greater deliverance as well for the, the battle at Armageddon, where, where God saves those who have been deemed righteous by being united to Christ from those who are wicked, from those who are in their sins. So it's, he's worth praising, friends. But don't make excuses. Seek him. You know, he's willing to save. Uh, if he saved sinner, a sinner like me, what's to prevent him from saving a sinner like you? Nothing. So let's pray, and then um, we'll continue on with the night. Father in heaven, we praise you for this song of deliverance and for how it is that in your sovereign plan you have people involved, Lord. And when we think of our involvement with your sovereign plan, help us to have faith, Lord. Help us to be obedient. Uh, we know that we don't override your sovereignty by our choices. So help us then to make choices that are in line with your perfect will, your holy will. Help us to not have excuses for the ways in which we fall short and in every shortcoming, Lord, remind us of the gospel, the hope that is in it, Lord, that it is not our own righteousness that causes us to come before you, but it is the righteousness of Christ that enables us to come before you. He is a fountain of righteousness that will never run dry. And may we never leave from it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.